Okay, now we've been discussing the Buddha Pariyaya Sutta, and now we come to the last section of the Sutta. In this section, the Buddha will explain the cognitive process of the Arahant. Last time we did the cognitive process of the disciple and higher training, the Satan. Okay, now the distinction of the Arahant from the Seka. The Seka, or disciple in training, is one at the three lower stages of enlightenment. That is a stream enterer, once returner, or a non-returner. At these stages, the disciple has eliminated the possibility of forming any conceiving, any wrong notions on account of ditti or wrong views. He can no longer adopt or accept any views which posit a real self, either a permanent eternal self or a temporary self which is annihilated at death. But even the disciple in training, even at the third level of enlightenment, the stage of non-returner, can still give rise to conceiving originating from the other two roots, namely conceit and craving. That is, the training, the disciple in training, can still think in terms of mind, still has the sense of possession, appropriation. Of course, it's not a gross type of appropriation, he's not concerned with acquiring possessions, but still the idea of mine, this is mine, arises in his mind. Now it's now a very subtle type of idea or thought mine. And also because of the underlying root of conceit, the notion I am, or simply I, arises in the mind. These ideas just arise spontaneously, naturally, through (coughs) the deep-rooted conditioning that has been implanted in the mind in the course of this beginningless samsara. These are like habitual formations imprinted on the mind and which are still to some extent kept alive by a very subtle residue of craving and conceit. Tanha and Man. 
But this disciple does not accept these ideas of I and mind at the base value. In other words, he doesn't take them as pointers to a real I, a real self. But as soon as such ideas arise, then he will immediately recognize their delusive nature. He will immediately recognize that they are just say, products of this habitually false way of thinking. But the disciple will go on training in order to develop insight by contemplating the five aggregates as arising and passing away. And this contemplation of the aggregates as pass arising and passing away, this is the insight into impermanence, which will lead into the insight into suffering and then into the insight into anatta, selflessness. And when the wisdom of the disciple becomes perfectly mature, then the disciple will attain the path of arahanship, will enter the path of arahanship. And by cultivating and developing that path, the faculty of wisdom will cut off and eradicate all the deep underlying tendencies of ignorance, craving, and conceit. All of the asavas or taints, the taint of sensual desire, craving for existence, and ignorance. So when the disciple reaches the fruit of our hunship, then all those defilements of the mind are permanently and totally eradicated. And because all craving and conceit along with ignorance have been eradicated, the liberated one, the arahant, no longer gives rise to any thoughts which are framed in terms of these deluded notions of I and mine. I am and mine. How it is possible for the Arham to think, to experience, without these notions, I have to say it's <laughs> rather inconceivable. <laughs> and the Arhant will still make use of these terms, I and mine, just the way ordinary people do, but he uses them just for the sake of convenience just for easy communication. 
since it would seem rather pretentious to speak about this bundle of five aggregates has to go into the town today <laughs> and that towel belongs to this bundle of five aggregates <laughs> and so he will say I have to go into town or that is my towel but these terms mean absolutely nothing to him in terms of any subjective clinging, grasping, or holding. For the Arahant, all of these are just bare phenomena. Okay, so now in this last section of the Sutta, the Buddha will discuss the cognitive process of the Arahant. Actually, I'm working from this version. Okay, this is paragraph 51. Okay, the bhikkhu who is an arahant, one with the taints destroyed, who has lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached the true goal, destroyed the fetters of being, and is completely liberated through final knowledge, directly knows earth, as earth. Okay, here, this is Abhijanati. And this is something that the Arhant has in common with the disciple and higher training. If you remember in the section on the disciple and training, it also says that he directly knows earth as earth. And this contrasts with the cognition of the worldling, the Putujana, who perceives earth as earth. Of course, in order to think about any object, the Arhan first has to perceive it, but he doesn't, or he's not deluded by his perception. He doesn't give rise to perceptions which grasp the object as a whole and accept the object at its base value as being something solid and substantial. But immediately when a perception arises, the Arahant directly knows the object as it truly is. He knows it as just a conditioned phenomena which is impermanent, suffering or unsatisfactory, and without any substance. It's not self insubstantial. Okay, now having perceived, have directly known the object as such. In the case of the learner or, or trainee, in a sense, he should not conceive her. He should not conceive in her. He should not conceive apart from her. He should not conceive earth is mine. That is, in the case of the disciple in training, the Buddha gives a command or an injunction, instructions in the way he should 
trained. But in the case of the Arhat, the Buddha says simply, he does not conceive earth. He does not conceive in earth. He does not conceive apart from earth. He does not conceive earth to be mine. He does not delight in earth. That is, the Arahant does not posit in his thinking any I or self as existing in relationship to the object of perception. He does not identify, say, the physical body as being I, taking the four elements of the physical body, the earth element, and so on. He doesn't think that this body is I, this body is self. He doesn't even give rise even to a thought, a momentary thought, the body is I, the body is mine. He doesn't conceive in the earth. He doesn't conceive I am existing in this body, in this earth element. He doesn't conceive apart from earth. He doesn't conceive the body is one thing, I am something else. I am existing apart from this body. For example, when one identifies with the mind, then one will think I am the mind, the mind is in the body. That is conceiving in the earth. He does, that is conceiving, that's conceiving in the earth. He doesn't conceive himself as an I existing in some way apart from the body. And he doesn't conceive earth, body, to be mine. He doesn't take it to be the possession of a self. And he does not delight in, he doesn't try to extract enjoyment from the earth, from the body, from anything else. This seeking delight, that is conditioned by craving. Okay, and why is this, the Buddha asks, the reason is because he has fully understood it. That is, he has understood the object completely. In the case of the trainee, the disciple in training, the Buddha says that the disciple should refrain from conceiving, refrain from delight, so that he may fully understand it. But in the case of the Arhat, the Buddha says that he does not conceive, and the reason is because he has fully understood it. I explained in an earlier class the meaning of full understanding. To fully understand things, the way it's explained in the commentary of text, means to understand something at three levels. In the first level, which is called technically jnata parinya, it's the full, you can say the full understanding 
of the object. This means that one discriminates the object in terms of its characteristics, its function, its condition. One sees how the object is distinct from other entities. For example, the earth element has its own particular characteristic, hardness or softness, different degrees, hardness and softness. But the earth element is quite distinct in its characteristic from the water element. The water element has the characteristic wetness. Both are distinct from the fire element, which has the characteristic of heat. Both distinct, all distinct from the wind element, which has the characteristic of motion, movement. Then the mental factors, they have their own characteristic. Feeling, perception, volition, consciousness. Each has its own characteristic. And so, to fully understand the different elements means to perceive their characteristics, not just through study and reflection, but through actual observation in the development of insight meditation. So that one is attending, as one goes on, attending, say, to the body, one starts to perceive the different properties of the body. Hardness and softness, which one recognizes as the characteristics of the earth element. The flowing quality or moisture, moist quality of the body, that is the water element. Bodily heat is the fire element. And the, say, movements or oscillation, vibration in the body, that is the working of the wind element. And then one turns to the mental factors and one can identify the characteristic of feeling. One observes feeling, how that has the characteristic of, say, experiencing the object as pleasant or painful. Then the characteristic of perception, which is noting or grasping the distinctive features of the object. Volition, forming intention regarding the object. Consciousness, the awareness of the object. So in this way, one distinguishes the different characteristics of the object. And then one also recognizes the conditioned nature of these phenomena. One sees how the body arises and subsists independent upon its condition. Food, for example. Without food, the body cannot endure. Feeling, perception, the mental formation, the volition, they depend upon contact with an object. And consciousness depends upon all of the mental and physical factors that make up experience. 
So one sees the conditioned nature of the phenomena. Okay, and all of these together, this is the full comprehension of the object that is known. Full understanding, the nyata parinya. Then one goes on investigating the phenomena of body and mind and one sees that they are constantly arising and passing away. This gives one insight into impermanence. And when one sees the impermanence of everything within this compound of mind and body, one recognizes that everything in mind and body is dukkha, imperfect, flawed, unsatisfactory. And what is impermanent is without any underlying substance or self. So one sees that it is insubstantial or selfless, devoid of any true self. So this is the full understanding by investigation, that is investigating the five aggregates and seeing that they are all impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. And this leads to the third type of full comprehension, which is called Bahana Parinya, full comprehension by abandoning. That is, it's the abandoning or giving up of all craving and clinging in regard to the five aggregates. Okay, so the Arahant is one who has completed this process of full understanding. And because he has completed this full understanding of the objects, he doesn't give rise to any conceiving or delight. Okay, now this passage runs through for all the other twenty all the other twenty-three objects of conceiving, from the water element up to Nibbana. Okay, now the Buddha, after completing this section on the Arhant, has included three additional sections, which differ only in the reason why the Arhant does not conceive in terms of I and mind. Okay. One is that because he is free from lust, from raga, through the, through the destruction of raga. The second, because he is free from hate, through the destruction of hate. And third, because he is free from delusion through the destruction of delusion. And here this phrase, he is free from lust to the destruction of lust, this, the Buddha expresses himself in this way in order to emphasize the fact that he's not simply free from lust hatred and delusion temporarily through, for example, developing 
some deep state of samadhi or concentration, but rather he's free from lust, hatred, and delusion because he has developed wisdom, insight, to the point that these three root defilements have been utterly cut off and do not exist in any form, in any way. They have been completely obliterated even at the most, at the deepest, most subliminal level, the level of what is called the anusayas, or underlying tendency. And so because the arahant is free from lust, he doesn't, in perception, he doesn't give rise to any perceptions which are tinged by the, by the perception of things as being pleasurable, enjoyable, delightful. And because he is free from hatred, he doesn't perceive things as being in some way disagreeable, or unpleasant, or repulsive. And because he is free from delusion, he doesn't perceive anything as being permanent, substantial, lasting, or perceive anything as being a true, truly existing self. Nothing that is there to grasp upon as being I and mine. That's why the Buddha says in the case of the Arhan, for him, in the seen, there is only what is seen. In the heard, only what is heard. In the felt, only what is felt. In the thought, in what is conceived, or what is cognized, there is only what is cognized. For him, there is no, in seeing, there is no duality of seer and seen, of the subject who sees and object that is seen. When hearing, there is no duality of an eye which hears and an object which is heard, a sound which is heard. In sensing anything else through touch, for example, there is no duality of tactile sensations and an eye which feels. In thinking, there is no duality of an eye which cognizes and the idea or notion which is cognized. But all the Arhat's experience is completely void of all of these dualistic notions of I and mine, all subjective notions of I and mine. For ordinary people like ourselves, the experience seems to point inwards. Objects are always pointing inwards as though there is somebody standing behind the experience perceiving it. This is the I, the us-me, the ego entity. But in the Arhat's experience, that 
very, even the subtlest residue of the notion that I and mine have just been burned to the ground. So there's just experiences occurring, but it's not occurring to anybody. It's just bare experience. I don't know <laughs> how to function. This functioning. Yeah. Maybe if you if you give a little animation to mana in the sense that we think it is a, a man who cannot live without two nurses who support him, not on the same time, but he cannot walk without having the support of either victim or time. But when these two things are not there, he cannot exist at all. And probably, I don't know, that is a question of language. Mana could be male yeah. in the language. Tanna Diti could be female. I don't know if that is in Bali like that. <laughs> Okay, now, having finished the section on the Arhant, the Buddha takes the fourth type of person, which is himself, the Tathagata. The Buddha, of course, is also an Arhant, and so his cognitive process is in most respects similar to that of the Arhant, but there are certain so the Buddha has certain preeminent qualities which are not shared by the disciple of Okay, so now taking the section on the Tathagata, here we're in paragraph 147. The Buddha says, The Tathagata, who is the Arahant Samasambuddha, the accomplished one, the fully enlightened one, directly knows earth as earth. Having directly known earth as earth, he does not conceive earth. He does not conceive in earth. He does not conceive apart from earth. He does not conceive earth to be mine. He does not delight in earth. Why is that? Then he gives the answer here, which is, it's a little bit, the way the text has come down, a little bit different. He says, because the Tathagata has fully understood it to the end, I say. Here, in Pali, in the case of the Arhat, it's parinyatam tasa vadami. Parinyatam. But in the case of the Tathagata, it's Parinyatangtam. It could be the case that <laughs> the second tongue here was just Parinyatangtam, that there could have been even a scribal error which somehow got preserved in the tradition. <laughs> But in any case, the commentators make, they ascribe some significance to this difference and take it to mean that in the case of the Tathagata, 
all things have been fully understood completely in their totality. In the case of the Arhan, he reaches enlightenment just by fully understanding a limited number of phenomena, just the phenomena that come into range of his own experience. But it's said that in the case of the Buddha, when he reaches enlightenment, then he achieves the knowledge of omniscience, of the knowledge which fully comprehends, which fully embraces all phenomena in all of their modes. So this is what makes the Buddha a fully or perfectly enlightened one, and which enables him to function as the teacher for the world, the Loka Guru, the Jagat Guru. Okay, everything else in that first section for the Dutakata is the same as for the Arhat. Okay, and now the Buddha adds in describing the Dutakata another passage, which is quite important and interesting. Okay, again the Dutakata doesn't conceive anything, doesn't rely anything. Why is that? Because he has understood that delight is the root of suffering. And he has understood that with being as conditioned, there is birth, and that for whatever has come to be, there is aging and death. Therefore, through the complete destruction, fading away, cessation, giving up, and relinquishing of craving, the Tathagata has awakened to the supreme, full enlightenment, I say. Okay, in this passage, what do we have being indicated? One of the major Buddhist doctrines is being implied here very concisely. In a very original... Exactly, it's Paticca Samuppada. But it's given in a somewhat indirect way. Okay, because he has understood that delight is the root of suffering. Now if we have no other passages, there are some other passages which speak of delight, nandi, as being connected with craving, or as being in some way a synonym for clinging. In other words, it's either tanha or rupadan. Either craving or clinging is indicated by delight. Since what leads us to take delight in things, I mean it's not, this is a, a special use of the word nandi or delight. It's not just the ordinary pleasure, but it's a kind of seeking of pleasure through the thirst for enjoyment, the craving for enjoyment. Okay, so this craving through delight is the root of suffering. 
of dukkha. And they have understood, take this delight to be craving and clinging, then they imply existence. This is following the regular formula of dependent nation. Clinging, there is new existence. Okay, there is craving is what sustains the cycle of rebirth, what brings about a new existence. And that new existence, that is being or bubbling. So once, through craving and clinging, once one sets in motion the arising or coming beings of a new existence, then that new existence begins with birth. And when there is birth, then there is old age, sickness, and death. Okay, so here we have formula or part of the formula of Paticca Samuppada indicated in a somewhat different wording from usual. Okay, and now because this delight, this seeking delight, this is the work of craving. And for this, having seen this and understood that delight is the root of suffering, in order to put an end to the cycle of rebirth, of repeated existence, the Buddha has broken up that nest of craving and completely uprooted all forms of craving, relinquishing. The text uses the plural, tanhana. It's a way of emphasizing that every type of craving has been given up and relinquished. And by doing so, the Tathagata has awakened to the full enlightenment. Okay, and this is repeated for each of the sections from the water up to Nibbana. Okay, now usually when I end the explanation of the sutta, we just I just say, okay, that's the end of the sutta. But now we have to read this ending carefully. The ending goes, that is what the Blessed One said, but those bhikkhus did not delight in the Blessed One's words. <laughs> Somebody had suggested maybe they didn't delight because they understood that delight is the root of suffering. <laughs> so therefore they didn't even enjoy the, the words of the Buddha. <laughs> but I think that sense of delighting, that is quite acceptable. <laughs> Textual absolutely correct statements of the text. <laughs> 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 
but I couldn't see a little uh, defect in the blackboard, a small little defect. Anyway, they worked three hours and everybody was sweating and I was sitting there and said, okay, I have made my money today, it is finished. They have a lot of difficulties with that. And then, when I met the professor for mathematics at one time, he found, you, I looked at the blackboard, you have not seen that that little scratch on the blackboard has given you a comma and the whole mathematical problem was cutting out of hand for these students. So in the same way it is possible here because Neumann does not use some. He doesn't. No. And uh, <coughs> I'm quite convinced that this is somehow a mistake and later put up with commentaries very cleverly because one can everything, one can put a commentary on everything. Perhaps one is intelligent <laughs> and we bring it back. But it does not make sense for me. Either we are not intelligent enough that we are pleased to see the Buddha and we have heard something. Whatever, however I term it, uh, it is impossible for me to conceive that not have been pleased in the spiritual way pleased by hearing such a profound and deep and opening thing. It must have been the same, same joy as Anatta Pindika had the deathbed many years ago. And that's my opinion. Anyway, the, the text has come down in the various oriental editions of the Machini Nikaya as reading that the Bhikkhus did not <coughs> delight in the Blessed One's words. Then the commentary tries to explain this by reference to this traditional story. The commentary tries to explain this by reference to the traditional story that I related earlier, which explains how the sutta came to be delivered by the Buddha. If you remember, the story relates that there were 500 Brahmins who had somehow encountered the Buddha and they were impressed by his personality and so they took ordination as monks under him. And then they quickly, because they were skilled in memorizing texts, they quickly learned the teachings and they knew them by memory. And so they became proud and conceited and didn't show reverence to the Buddha anymore or go to listen to his discourses. And they spurned the other monks, thinking that they were superior to them. And so the Buddha wanted to speak this Mulapariyaya to them in order to break down their conceit. And so the commentary says that at the end of the discourse, these monks did not delight in the Blessed One's words because the words were so deep and difficult to understand that they were perplexed and bewildered, they didn't understand it, and therefore they didn't take pleasure. Anyway, this is the explanation, but 
if we assume that that background story is true, which I also have to share, that was the basic skepticism, <laughs> both about the story and about this reading. But anyway, if we accept that it is a true account of the background story, I would say that the reason that they did not delight in the Buddha's words is not because they didn't understand them, but rather because they understood them too well. Because each of the, or many of these sections in which the Buddha Buddha has spoken in the Sutta take certain notions which were very dear to the Brahman. He mentions among the objects of conceiving Brahma, the David, Pajapati, who is one of the names of the created life of Brahmanism, Abhihu, the overlord, which might have been another designation for Mahabrahma. And so I think in those passages, the text is definitely hitting against ideas which come out of the Vedas, the Upanishads. After the Buddha broke down the conceit and arrogance of these bhikkhus through the sermon, then they became very humble, respectful to him, and were willing to study and to continue their practice. Then when the Buddha knew that their spiritual faculties were mature enough, then he spoke another sutta called the Gotamaka Sutta. It's a very short but also it's a powerful sutta. And when the Buddha finished speaking that sutta, then the, these 500, uh, 500 monks attained arhat. Okay, that is the end of the Mula Pariyaya Sutta. If there's any questions, any comments, I would like to know if that word delight, which is mentioned before, and the, the, the word delight, which is mentioned in connection with the knot, yeah. is the same in Pali. It's basically the same, though. It's Abhinandati. Yeah, because we have, for delight, we have quite a range of similar Yeah, but these are the same words. They are not spoken by the same person because the, uh, the Sutta, that is the Buddha's word. And the, the last sentence, they did not delight, that is a some report. Yeah, uh, somebody right. has uh, seen yeah. the monks and yeah. has decided they did not delight. Yeah. So it's not a not part of the Buddha's word, I think. That is so, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is part of the... Um, part of, of the part? Or <coughs> these are practically... But it could, that could have been perhaps a very old oral tradition in the Sangha before the suttas were rehearsed. Interesting. Because there's a Chinese version of the Majima Nikaya, which comes from a different early school, the Savastivada school. And probably this sutta is also preserved in Chinese. It'll be interesting to see if it be somebody who knows Chinese to check that and see if, they have, if it has the same ending. If it does, then it would mean that 
this particular tradition, this way of ending the sutta, really precedes the division of early Buddhism into these different schools, the two schools of Theravada, Sarvastivada. And so at least there would be some testimony to the antiquity of that particular reading. Anyway, it's definitely not the handicap for a main Nibbana when we are not taking any notice of these last yes. words. Any, any? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.